Lyman will preach. The second reading is taken from Psalm 103, verses 6 to 10. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Thank you, Penny, for reading to us. Actually, I would quite like you to... This is an amazing thing. In the pews, we've got these Bibles. I'd love to get you to turn up the psalm that we had read because I want to actually take us to look back at the start of it as well. It's page 605, I think. Psalm 103, from which Penny's reading came. And when you found it, it'd be good to pray. Psalm 103, and I want to just remind us of the first verse of the psalm. Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. And it is our prayer, Heavenly Father, that you'd open our eyes as we look at your word, that you'd open our hearts, our inmost being, to to receive what you want to say to us, And then that you'd open our mouths to praise and thank and worship you as you deserve. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we began this psalm last week. Um, I think you can listen up to it if you want to miss it. because If you missed it last week, you can listen up to it because I'm pretty sure it's been recorded. It's on the website, available for consumption It was a super talk, a great introduction. Last week, we were really looking at God's personal intervention in David's life. Um, Strictly speaking, it was the psalmist, David, talking to his own soul about blessings that he'd received. And it's very striking how a psalm, we're going to go through the whole psalm over the next four weeks, very striking how a psalm that begins and ends with praise is addressed in the first instance by the psalmist, David, to himself. So he's talking about praising God, but actually, to start with, he's talking to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And sometimes said that talking to yourself is the first sign of madness. Actually, that's not right. It's actually the first step back to spiritual sanity, to talk to myself and to tell myself important things about God particularly. We have um, in our church family Christopher Catherwood as a member of the congregation. And his grandfather was one of the great preachers of last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He absolutely loved this psalm, and he loved it as an antidote to having the blues, sort of spiritual depression. 
Because what David does here is, instead of paying endless attention to himself, which is what we often do, we listen to the things going on in our lives as if they were the all-important things, our, our problems, our doubts, our grievances. And instead of doing that, instead of paying attention to himself, actually David does something slightly different. He doesn't just give a sympathetic hearing to the problems in his life, he actually sets us an example of talking to ourselves. So he actually takes control of his thoughts. He reminds himself of what God has done for him. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, all the benefits God has given him. So he'd had some experience, we don't know exactly what, that made him realize that God had blessed him. Remember last week with forgiveness, with healing, with a second crown. He already had a crown because he was royalty, but God had crowned him with love and compassion. So he had a second crown as well. And I take it, as we listen to all those blessings of David's, we ought to be able to echo them with similar blessings when we receive them. But they are personal blessings, part of God's people's lived experience or at least they will be in the future if we're yet to experience all the prosperity that David had. Personal intervention. This week we move on to the historical blessings of God's people, which are the foundations of the covenant, the agreement he had with all God's people, from which all the blessings uh, we enjoy spring. I hope the gear change will be clear to you. I'm sorry if it sounds like technical language to put it like this. But notice from verse 6 onwards that David isn't, at this point, talking to his own soul. We move in today's section from the subjective, his personal experience, to the objective. God's rescue way back when, in history, through Moses, from which all the other blessings flowed. I'll try and explain it more if that's still a bit of a mystery to you. We'll get there in the end, hopefully. Let me begin by rereading from verse 6, therefore, where Penny started us off in the reading. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And that's a wider truth um, which we do well to notice. It's expressed as a general truth, justice for all the oppressed. So anyone by virtue of their creation as a human being in the image of God is worthy of respect and dignity as my equal. And how I relate to them is a reflection of how I relate to God who made them. Therefore, how I relate to them matters to him because the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. I wonder if we've got the honesty to realize that we might find ourselves uncomfortably on both sides of that particular truth. It's possible for us in this room to be both oppressed and oppressors. As somebody really helpfully put it, I think this is a very helpful thing to remember. Sinful people respond sinfully to being sinned against. So I might be sinned against, I might be oppressed, and I might well respond to you, who's taking it out on me, sinfully myself. Most of us will be in both of those camps at some stage or other. 
I know that some groups of people have historically borne brutal oppression. Women, probably more than men. People of different races, the unborn we ought to mention, the disabled, the elderly. And I don't want to minimize those kinds of oppression, but we will all more than likely have been oppressed by others at times, and very likely we will have oppressed other people as well. So my point I'm trying to make is that any accounting of who has wronged who will actually be very hard to unravel, hard for us, but not, this is really good news, not hard for God in one sense. He is a God who often rights wrongs in this world, as some historic injustices are put right, and he will put wrong to right finally and fully in the future. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Now, this aspect of God's character was particularly clear in his people's history back in Egypt. Do you remember Pharaoh... The king in Egypt was working the Israelites to the bone. He was oppressing them. Remember that refrain that runs through the early chapters of Exodus? The Lord heard the cry of the Israelites. And then what did he do? He worked righteousness and justice for the oppressed. So verse 7 carries on. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And the colon there in your text links to the next verse because the way he made known his ways to Moses and to Israel specifically was in a vision of God that Moses had, which we heard about in our first reading in Exodus 34, the time when the Lord God passed in front of Moses proclaiming exactly what we read in verse 8, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. So it was to that great rescue story from Israel's past that David looked back. It means that it wasn't just wishful thinking uh, about God forgiving all his sins that we thought about last week. God had shown in the past, objectively, that he was just that kind of God. Even when, again and again, those Israelites continued in sin. I I don't know if you know the story in Exodus, but it was a a catalogue of disaster for the Israelites in Moses' day. No sooner had they been rescued from God's judgment in Egypt that they moan against God. I wish we were back there again. They whine away. Uh, No sooner had they been told how to live now that they're God's people. They're given the law at Sinai. And straight away they cook up the golden calf and have a pagan festival. So all the sort of signs of God's love for them, it's almost as if they throw God's love back in his face repeatedly after all that he'd done for them. And I take it there's great encouragement in the story, therefore, for us. Because I think we easily forget how sinful we are. The story of Israel's escape from Egypt is unworthiness from start to finish, even after they've become God's people. And you and I are no different. Let me put it like this. It'll be no surprise to God if a regular member of TNG has a spiritual blowout at a teenage Christmas party. 
Or another way, the next time you read in the paper about a, a well-known Christian leader being involved in some scandal, you might be surprised, and they might even be surprised, but God won't be. Somebody in that situation, or a, a similar one, might end up thinking to themselves, well, I'm really finished now. I know he forgave all my sin from my pre-Christian days, but I've done this now. I've really blown it, surely. Well, wonderfully, no. He is the compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And he had shown that to the Israelites in their storyline back in Exodus. We will continue to sin as Christians, but he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I love the story. I want to see Les Mis again on the box at some stage. I love the story of the, the petty thief, Jean Valjean, in um, that musical. He's taken in by the bishop, and the bishop feeds him. He gives him a, a free set of clothes, a, a bed for the night, and so on. Over dinner, Valjean sees a beautiful silver candlestick on the mantelpiece. And later that night, when the bishop's gone to sleep, he creeps through the dining room, puts the candlestick in his bag and leaves. But he gets caught red-handed by a policeman who marches him straight back in and wakes the bishop up. Sir, asks the policeman, what shall I do with the criminal? But the bishop answers, no, no, you don't understand at all. This man's a dear friend of mine. That candlestick is a gift from me. In fact, I'm surprised he didn't take my other gifts. And he gives him a whole load more silverware. So the policeman's completely befuddled and confused, and he leaves. And Valjean's pretty confused and dumbfounded as well, as the bishop fills his bag with more silver and wishes him God's blessing. Now, that's a a picture in some ways of God's grace to us. Even after we've been taken in, welcomed in by God, we've come to know his kindness and love, we will still treat him shamefully. And yet his grace covers not just the sins of the past, but the sins of the future as well. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And God's historic rescue in the book of Exodus showed that. So I wonder if you get the movement of the psalm so far. I love the fact that we can just take it fairly slowly and just look at a few verses each week. From the personal... Bless the Lord, O my soul. David talking to himself about something God has done for him. Why he forgives all my sin. From that personal thing, back to the historical. He forgives me now because he has shown himself in the past to be a God who forgives sin. And he could almost have quoted chapter and verse, Exodus 34, verse 8. So when my sin rises up to condemn me, and I'm guessing this is true for all of us in this room at times, we have a confession week by week, we've got it later on in the service, just because we all, if we're honest, need to acknowledge this is true of us. When my sin rises up to condemn me, it's really helpful to go back to the objective facts. It's actually why... In so many of our services, we go back to the old statements of the creeds. 
from hundreds of years ago originally, the events they're talking about, and then the creeds are all themselves as well, but they're pointing back to even older events, aren't they? Because they are objective facts on which we can base our assurance with confidence. I believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Historical, isn't it? And that he rose again on the third day, a specific point in time, historical, in the past. So my confidence that I'm forgiven is based not on the present, how I'm doing or how I'm feeling today, but on what he's done, objectively, historically, in the past. That's the way David reasoned here. We can be forgiven even for our ongoing sins because he's shown himself to be that kind of God. In the first exodus, when Moses led his people, and in the second great exodus, when Jesus died for all our sins, past, present, and future. Sins we have committed, the sins we will commit, the sins we know about, and the sins we don't know about. I've highlighted in what I've said so far the sins we've yet to commit, which might cause us to lose confidence. Perhaps it's actually that that category of sins I have committed that I'm not aware of that uh, is on your mind. Those sorts of things might easily raise their ugly head to haunt us today. You must be a strange person if you don't hear about well-known people doing wrong things in the, in the past, in 2009 or 1990 or whenever it is, without thinking of the things that you've done in the past. It certainly makes me think that way. Things I did in the past which I've buried or which at the time I didn't know were as wrong as they obviously are. With hindsight, you see lots of things that we thought were okay, we now know aren't. And the right response, it seems to me, is for us to say, not they weren't wrong, but they were wrong, and I'm owning them as my wrongs, if I'm aware of those. Well, God can forgive those sins too. The only membership there ever is in any church is a membership of sinners. All saints is a fellowship of sinners. Forgiven sinners, but sinners nonetheless. And we need a church culture where the past is acknowledged and owned and put right. And those who've been affected, victims, are helped and supported. So past sins are faced honestly but thank God, this is wonderful news, isn't it? Thank God that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. So what's the response which Psalm 103 calls us to? Well, it's pretty easy, that one, isn't it? I think you've probably got this. The response that Psalm 103 calls us to is this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, so let's make sure we praise him personally for that truth he's shown again and again historically. And I want to encourage you to find time on your own to praise him for that compassion, that grace, that slow to angerness that he shows. Make sure you find time today on your own to praise him for that. 
uh, before you go to sleep tonight. And if you're really stuck, then use the words of Psalm 103 to do it. Let's pray together. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you are a God who loves the downtrodden and is concerned to right the wrongs of human behavior. We thank you that you're concerned for all the oppressed today. And we thank you that you're willing to forgive oppressors like us, people who've done wrong to others, people who've sinned against you and pushed away your love, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. And we thank you for being just and the one that can justify uh, people like us who sinned against you and others through what Jesus did when he died on the cross for us. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you that you are that kind of God that can forgive and be patient and uh, soak up the sin, as it were. We thank you that you're not a God who is unwilling to lay down your life for us. You did that in Jesus Christ. And we praise you for it, Father, in his precious name. Amen.